I could see like the edge of the slide and I saw a ridge where it wasn't sliding. And so I first I tried to get to the side, but quickly realized that that was just not going to happen. Went for a couple hundred feet. I think it was about like 600, 700 total until I pretty much hit one tree that did all the damage to me, but probably also saved my life. This is The Fine Line, and I'm your host, Matt Hanson. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. In this episode, we're going to revisit an exceptionally close call from an avalanche this winter in Grand Teton National Park. On January 16th, 2023, a group of four Jackson locals set out to ski the west face of Albright Peak. Charlie Pierce, a snowboarder, dropped in first and triggered a massive slide that left him with severe internal injuries and very easily could have killed him. We'll hear how the prevalence of digital media influences our trip planning and decision making. We'll consider questions of preparedness and communication and take a good look at what it means to be open and honest about being in an avalanche. In this episode, Charlie Pierce, Benton Hodges, Seth Fry, and Evan Flack share details of what they experienced upon Albright Peak, while Teton County Search and Rescue volunteer Dr. A.J. Wheeler reflects on how the team responded with the Jane Lake Climbing Rangers to this big avalanche event. Remember that you can support this podcast and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by going to tetoncountysar.org donate. We'll be right back. The Fine Line is presented by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety and the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located in the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. Roadhouse is a certified B Corp Best for the World company, helping to preserve this beautiful land we call home. The Roadhouse Pub and Eatery is located on the square in downtown Jackson, and look for their beer and cans at a store near you. Visit roadhousebrewery.com. The Fine Line is also presented by Steo. At home in the Tetons, Steo lives and loves the mountain life. Time spent outside on trails, in rivers, and on summits inspires everything they create. That's why Steo is committed to a higher standard of sustainability, using responsible materials like Blue Sign approved textiles, organic cotton, RDS certified down, and recycled fabrics whenever possible. In their 11th year, Steo supports causes that protect our most treasured places and encourages diversity of access. Most recently, Steo has become a climate neutral certified company. Let the outside in at steo.com. I remember it really setting in for a few reasons on the helicopter ride. I had the middle seat, so I didn't have the best view, but I remember when we lifted off and you could see how far it ran down that secondary gully toward Death Canyon, just like stomach dropping kind of thing. Like, wow, like that was big, like not just your normal wind slab, slough, new snow kind of thing. Like, they put pictures of those in the textbooks kind of thing. My name is Benton Hodges. I am 33 years old, uh, originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
Um, I work out at Shooting Star Golf Course on the maintenance side of things. Been backcountry skiing for about five years, mostly when I moved to Jackson. And then right as we crest out of that cloud in Death Canyon, and we I get into cell phone service, I just start getting a bunch of text messages. I think from Charlie's mom and Olivia. I just remember being like, oh, okay, like, we're already, like, in it kind of thing. I feel like I was just, like, still in that. I'm happy I'm safe mode, like, nobody else needs to know about this just yet kind of thing. But, like, I feel like that kind of almost gave me a head start of just being, like, face this head on kind of thing. You can't really hide this avalanche, you know? The desire to hide from the aftermath of an avalanche can be almost as strong as the avalanche itself. Maybe it's because backcountry skiing is supposed to be this beautiful, life-changing activity where we finish the day with high fives and beers on the tailgate. Avalanches wipe all of that away and often replace it with feelings of shame and the critical judgments of people who weren't there and who don't know you. But in this case, Benton Hodges typed up a detailed accident report and shared it publicly the day after. As you'll hear, the way this group has been supported post-accident shows that we are making strides as a community to not shame those who have been involved in an avalanche. It has made it easier for this group to talk about the trauma they experienced, and hopefully it will help the rest of us not just talk about these things, but become good listeners as well. My name is Charlie Pierce. I'm originally from Suffer, New York. I've lived in Jackson for this my now eighth winter out here. Uh, after I graduated college, I moved out west to Breckenridge, Colorado for a winter, and then South Lake Tahoe for a winter as well, and then moved to Jackson. I've been here since. My backcountry skiing has been about eight or so years, right when I moved here. That first winter, I skied in the backcountry, but I wouldn't say it was a backcountry rider. And then since then, it's progressed. I'm a snowboarder and a splitboarder, I guess. I also think that, honestly, Benton is so open with this stuff and not just open for him his own needs but open for the community needs i think that it comes off on me and possibly the rest of us as well this is a pretty big event in the tetons and there's a lot to learn not just with the four of us but with everybody in the tetons and not just the tetons just people that put themselves in these these scenarios where avalanches can happen and how are you going to not just how are you going to deal with it that day but how are you going to deal with it Post and pre, like there, we had thankfully a lot of knowledge and learning experiences and time on snow and mentors before this event happened, which set us up to be able to handle it pretty well. And then, and I think that like, I think we handled some things very well. We obviously, there was a big mistake made because there's a big avalanche and we need to, why not help our community learn just as much as we've learned. On the morning of January 16th, 2023, the thermometer read 9 degrees. Pretty average as temperatures go for Jackson Hole in the middle of January. There'd been between 3 to 10 inches of new snow in the Tetons, depending on the location. The Bridger Teton Avalanche Center's forecast for that day stated, quote, variability is the best way to describe today's avalanche danger, unquote. The forecast included some discussion about whether the hazard rating should be considerable or the lesser moderate or maybe even, quote-unquote, spicy moderate. The forecast center explained that the reasoning behind maintaining the moderate rating was the spatial distribution of instabilities, such as small avalanches in specific terrain or large avalanches in isolated terrain. 
it asked people to think about those specific or isolated areas with significantly more snowfall before making their terrain choices. The stability has been kind of, was getting better and better at the time. The persistent weak layer was off the avalanche report for a couple weeks, so that was opening our eyes to bigger lines, and it was still pretty early in the winter, so that was definitely, that was on our mind as well. We wanted to kind of get up into the alpine, but not, we didn't want to push it too much at all that day, honestly. Yeah, I think eventually we kind of settled on, like, it felt like it was going to be kind of one of those classic surface snow stabilities concerns for the Tetons, you know. We had mentioned staying away from bigger faces like Tiwanat or repeat offenders like Tiwanat um, or the southeast face on the south. But, yeah, I think the previous four days, too, we had all, like, gotten out into some new zones, and so we were feeling that exploratory bug of let's ski something all that we haven't skied before, you know. And, yeah, I think after much just running around the bush, we figured we had to settle on something, and a long, fun, exploratory day off the west side of Albright sounded sounded pretty sweet. West off of Albright is something that none of the four of us have done before, and we thought it was a pretty good day to check it out. Our thought of the day was that we were going to start by going up Albright and ski west and see what we found in the uh, Death Canyon basin, basically. We did the Eddington shoots, which is also a west aspect in Teton Canyon, um, two days prior, then the day prior, we skied Moonwalk, which is north-facing into Avalanche Canyon. Both days was good soft snow everywhere. It was definitely, we were only thinking about surface stability at the time, the two days prior as well. Both of those two days, we also were thinking about that surface stability, but didn't see any signs of anything. So we were definitely, because of the days prior of not seeing any instability anywhere and skiing multiple aspects, we were wanting to get out higher into the alpine, but definitely, like Ben said, didn't want to push it as high as things like Tiwanot or the South Teton or things like, or big, big faces. So that's kind of why we really nestled into the Albright, West off Albright, having that exploratory mindset, getting to ski something pretty big, but not in our heads at the time, really out there at all. What is it about the Tetons? If you're going to try to explain that to somebody, family back east or someone who's never been here before, what is that draw for you guys? For me personally, it is just getting to travel around the mountains, doing it with people that you care about. I think these mountains are just the most gorgeous ones in the States, at least. I think that our snow conditions and the nature of the mountains also just set up for, it just seems like it's a ski resort, but a backcountry ski resort. Like it is just designed to ski. When you look into the Tetons in my eyes, I mean, I just look up there and every slate of snow I just want to carve my turns into, so it's a pretty special feeling. I also think that the people out here share that with me, and so having that camaraderie and having that just blissfulness out there in winter wonderland is pretty amazing, especially wintertime when the park is so packed in the summer. You go out in the winter and we get to spend so much time and we feel like we're by ourselves out there. So I think that's definitely pretty special. That's what gets me out there. I think it's an argument to be skiing in the backcountry is quality versus quantity, where if you ski inbounds, you might get one or two laps in the morning that are untouched or that are reasonably soft pow versus when you're out in the backcountry, you get maybe one lap all day, but the whole thing could be untouched. It could be just much better snowfall. 
My name is Seth Fry. I'm 28 years old. I'm originally from Burlington, Vermont. Uh, I work for Teton Art Services as an art installer. I've been skiing in the backcountry basically since I moved here five years ago. I think what one of the things that resonates the most with me in terms of backcountry skiing is um, the growth that you get out of it. I'm Evan Flack. I'm 32 years old. I grew up in Suffern, New York as well. I moved here about two and a half years ago um, and backcountry skied a handful of times before that, but um, wouldn't really consider myself a backcountry skier um, prior to that, but been getting out pretty consistently since I moved here. I work for a nonprofit engineering organization. I snowboard as well, but call it skiing. I think it's pretty easy to see progress. Uh, you can go from looking at something and thinking that it's absolutely impossible to seeing something and be like, oh, maybe I could do that one day, to then like going um, and being able to ski something. And I think that throughout that process, you have to overcome different physical, mental, emotional challenges. And being able to see that growth through backcountry skiing shows you that you can apply it to other areas of life. That morning, the group met at the Home Ranch parking lot in North Jackson. They climbed into Benton's blue truck and drove the 20 or so minutes to the Death Canyon Trailhead in Grand Teton National Park. It was pretty bluebird, like sporadic thin clouds, but just gorgeous out. Like Ben said, only one other car and it snowed the day before, so everything just looked like a clean slate out there. I think we're all feeling strong and good. Talked to a few groups on the way up. Kind of past one, we thought they were just gonna go to the top of Wimpy's, where we cut off kind of early to go over to the shoulder of Albright and then they eventually circled back around. We tried to yell to them that we were going west and that we wouldn't be skiing on top of them because they were kind of queued up at the shoulder. We couldn't quite tell what they were waiting on. They just wanted us to clear the top. Then we just transitioned at the top, kind of talked about like where we wanted to go down, looked at Fat Map a little, and started picking our way down the rocky section. In our heads, everything was looking really good. It was right side up. The top was super light, low density. We dug like a handful of little hand pits, but we were really only thinking of surface instability. So we were digging hand pits just to get a gist of what's going on. We were also skiing a different aspect, so we weren't getting super great data of like, if we see this, then we know we're gonna, we have to look out for this. We were just getting some sort of data and pretty much everything was showing that it was pretty stable, just light up top and gets heavy down low, no bad layers in the top, like two feet then got up high and did our normal transition and but yeah I just remember being like I'm glad I'm not skiing a sunny aspect like we were kind of excited to be heading towards the shade of the west side the other thing I want to ask you guys about is you mentioned fat map and I'm curious if you guys can explain what role digital mapping plays in your route finding and trip planning I think we definitely use it a good bit, but at the same time, we've just been, between the four of us in this room, we've been fortunate enough to be in the Tetons so often, winter and summer, that we get a really good gist of what's going on. We definitely use FatMap at times, and but it's that we know where we are so often. Even when we're skiing a line, like skiing west of Albright, that was the first time any of us has ever skied that, but like we knew where we were the whole time not just from being around in the Tetons in the summer and in the winter a bunch, but also from Fat Map of we're all, we geek out about it. So like, we're just constantly in contact with each other about what we have skied, what we haven't skied, what we want to ski and why. And Fat Map is just a really good tool to be able to plan these things, especially if you haven't done it yet. 
I also think about, you know, we were talking before, the night before, how we were texting, thinking about lines, things like that. I specifically remember sitting on my couch, and as we're talking about which lines to ski, I have my computer open, open, I'm looking at Fat Map, I'm looking at Cal Topo. We have, like, kind of a digital ski atlas of, like, pictures of different lines, and I'm looking at all those things. And I think what's what's great with something like with Fat Map is you can see a visual of what the what the terrain looks like, but then you can overlay elevation, aspect, slope angle, all that stuff. So it's definitely a key part of any sort of trip planning that we that we do. I think it's made my eyes bigger, you know. I get a lot of computer time at work in the winter. So you can just scroll little virtual Tetons and pick out what you want to do the next day, you know, which is a great thing, but also can be a dangerous thing, you know. In what way is it dangerous? Um, I guess just in the sense that unfamiliar terrain has less margins, you know. Like we said, none of us had skied west off Albright. It's sometimes, you know, whether if we had skied it before, you know, we would have known nuances that would have kept us from doing that. Probably not, but I think just the ability to to look far and wide and and uh, pick out big lines kind of thing is is awesome. But yeah, I I think it's it's made me hanging out there more just because I saw it and I probably wouldn't have seen it if I didn't have Fat Map. And kind of just going back to how you could get in danger, we're fortunate enough to be in the Tetons and see snow levels. Fat Map is a picture of a snow level at one time, so. Just seeing a white strip on Fat Map doesn't necessarily mean that snow is filled in in real life. So that's just another one of the things that us and everyone just has to be like, thinking thoughtful of when looking at Fat Map. That it, just because it looks one way in Fat Map does not at all mean that that's what it's going to look like when you get out there. But it is at the same time a nice tool to get a gist of what is going on. At around ten thirty in the morning, the group reached the top of Albright Peak. They found that the east face of Albright was showing some sun effect and wind slab. Off to the west side, they peered into the depths of Death Canyon, and they felt good about their chosen descent onto the shady west-facing slope. Charlie, Seth, and Evan walked across the rocky scree at the top of Albright in order to strap into their snowboards. Benton clicked into his skis and picked his way through the rocks. Then the group discussed who would go first. I remember that was the first day I got a new split board, so that was definitely the reason I wasn't skiing through the rocks. As a group, we decided that I was going to ski first. I kind of picked my way through some trees a touch at the top, like 50 vert of the pitch, then kind of popped out of those sparse trees and skied an open pow field for maybe 100 feet. And then towards the end of that pow field, I remember it was taking me a little longer just because the top section, we were like poking our way through and it was something new. So it took a second. As I was finishing skiing, I wasn't done skiing yet, but Benton radioed down something. I, the gist that I got out of it was like, how's it going down there basically? And I had like two turns left in the pitch. I saw where I was going to stop, where I thought was going to be a safe spot to stop right by the tree line. And so like before I stopped, I radioed back. It was awesome. You guys are good to come down. And right when I let go of the radio, I was basically making my last stop to wait for them to ski down to me. So I kind of moved the little skiers right from the actual fall line where I was skiing. And as I made that stop, I just kind of saw some fractures come out. It wasn't really like a ton of spider cracks. It was just a handful. 
they were just very long. They were mostly vertical, going yeah, vertical going like down the mountain. It was pretty silent, and like I just started barely moving at first. And my first thought was, grab this tree that I was stopping pretty close to, like within 10 feet of the tree in front of me. So did my best to grab that tree, but it was just a lot of weight. I could tell it broke way below me. It wasn't like any, I didn't feel anything happen. It was just me stopping and then the ground started coming with me as I made that stop. So as soon as I didn't grab onto that first tree and I started moving down, all I could think of was like, holy shit, I just told my buddies to like come ski down and it's all good. So I was, at first I was just trying to reach for my radio to tell them that it's not all good and that I was in the slide and so, Somehow I was able to get my hand on the radio, let them know that, and then it was just like, stay on top of the snow, basically for me. Right as we were like, all right, Evan, you're going down next. That's when we heard like, I'm in a slide, I'm in a slide, and like, sounded quite urgent. I remember just like kind of looking and like, them getting to comment like, that's what we just heard kind of thing. So we're like, all right, Evan, like, go see what happened. You know, the next 30 seconds, I can't remember the exact series of events, but I just remember at some point, Seth vocalized like, okay, what's the plan? And so we start kind of devising that. And right as we're discussing plans, that's when just like we can kind of see over our, our steep roller roll over down into the drainage of uh, the west face of Albright and stuff, just this big gully. And that's when I just see like the biggest powder cloud, like the ones you see on avalanche videos. And just the sounds of cracking of trees and like glass shattering kind of thing, like just all the textbook signs and, at the next, you know, until Charlie radioed up, like, we were starting a battery recovery at that point. Like, my mind had jumped so far ahead, weirdly. Like, I was already like, oh, man, we're going to have to deal with so much stuff. Like, all this paperwork, I have to tell Olivia. Like, just all this stuff. At the same time, we were, like, somehow still formulating a plan. Those 30 to 40 seconds are ones that I've definitely, like, sat with a bunch because he was dead and at that point in my mind kind of thing. I actually hit a handful of trees at the top without moving very fast, but with my snowboard on my feet, first of all, I couldn't really get a good grab of any tree, but even if I had the best hold of those trees, there was so much weight pushing down on my snowboard that there was just no way I was going to hold on to them. Kind of hit a couple trees. Then one of my feet on my split board popped out of the binding. I definitely credit that fully to having hard boots and the mechanism just of how my foot attaches to the snowboard is different than regular soft boots that most flipboarders use. So once that foot popped out, I actually felt like I was in more control because the snow wasn't really just pulling on me fully, having me having truly no, no say in anything, honestly, like even swimming, doing whatever I wanted with my arms. It was just so much weight on the snowboard that once the one foot popped out, I had some sort of maneuverability. And then not a couple seconds later, my other foot popped out. The snowboard shot down the mountain way faster than I was moving. At the time, like my first instinct was like, shit, like how am I going to get out of here if I'm okay because my board's gone? But at the same time, I was on top of the snow and in control enough to have feet downhill, head uphill on my butt kind of just like looking out at what's coming, trying my best to kind of move to the side of it. At the time, I could see the edge of the slide and I saw a ridge where it wasn't sliding. And so I first I tried to get to the side, but quickly realized that that was just not going to happen. And then kind of just going feet first, trying to protect myself, but at the same time, trying to grab onto trees to stop moving. 
was really all I was doing. Went for a couple hundred feet. I think it was about like 600, 700 total until I pretty much hit one tree that did all the damage to me, but probably also saved my life. Luckily, the tree actually snapped earlier in the avalanche. So it was only like the diameter of the tree was probably five inches thick, maybe a little more, um, and like two and a half, three feet tall. And so when I hit that, that two and a half, three foot tall stump slid right up through my backpack strap and really stopped me from continuing down. There wasn't too much more snow above me, but there was. So there was probably another handful of seconds of snow just flying by. But I was very securely locked onto that tree trunk, basically. I was very lucky that I didn't hit my head on anything as I was going down. None of the trees, nothing like that. And then once I did get stuck on the tree, having all of these pretty large chunks of snow coming by, I was just very lucky and they didn't hit me. I remember hitting the tree being just like, holy shit, I, I'm alive and I'm not moving anymore. A couple seconds went by and I was just like trying my best to slowly breathe, catch my breath and radio up to my partners to tell them that like I'm okay and alive and to tell them to move slow. Basically, it was all I wanted because I was just like, couldn't believe the scenario we got in pretty quickly. And I didn't want anybody else to be in a anyone else to have to get rescued or helped in any way. So I was just wanted to let them know that I was like, good, I can do my thing for the next whatever couple minutes as they made their way down, but was very, very thankful that I had that radio and got to say something to them, got to hear them say, okay, we're coming down, then hear their process of one by one, picking their way down through the terrain to get to me and find me. So at that point, you know, I think the plan became like we were going to leave Seth in cell service. I was going to go down to Evan. So we split up. I ski down to Evan. And I see Evan just standing there on a crown that looks like it's bigger than us, you know. Like, how are we even going to get down? We don't like where we're standing either, you know. So we start looking up. It's a little thinner up above us. I sidestep up, get onto the bed surface. I think right when I, I I just remember being like, this is going to be the worst beacon search of all time. Like, I could already tell it went down, like, multiple gullies. Is he going to be too deep to even, you know, pick up a signal kind of thing? And that's about when we got the radio call. And everything just changed. It suddenly became, I felt dialed and focused before, but still in a different spot. But once, like, I heard his voice, I was like, all right, now it's time to get shit done. Step one's complete. He's alive. He's not buried. Let's do what we got to do next kind of thing. It took a little while. My adrenaline was just pumping so much. I hit the train. I was like, oh, shit, I'm alive and I'm fine. That was like my first thought was like, I'm fine. As I like, caught my breath and tried to like get off of the tree and move to the side, I realized that I wasn't fine. The area was pretty steep. It was actually like where I stopped was actually like the steepest part of the whole slide, actually. Getting off the tree and moving five yards, ten yards to the side was when I started to realize, like, oh, I might not be okay the time my leg was really in a lot of pain it just felt like a crazy bad charlie horse couldn't really bend it at all and as time went on that was getting worse at first i was able to like walk to the side and felt pretty good about it but then in the 10 minutes or maybe even less of probably less of um my partner's coming to get to me that leg stiffened up so much that i like really couldn't even pick it up off the ground at the time i thought there was just something weird going on with my stomach it was definitely my biggest concern of anything I had pain in my chest and stomach, and it just felt weird. That was honestly, like, it didn't 
hurt as much as it felt weird and felt like something wasn't right. And it did take five to 10 minutes before that really set in that something was wrong. Before they even got to me, they radioed asking, like, do we need to get rescued? And my answer was not yes right away. I definitely thought that was possible, but I wasn't ready to make that call yet. We were also lucky enough two weeks prior, all four of us together did a companion rescue class with some other friends. And so I had in my head from that day that if something, if shit hits the fan, at least let search and rescue know that something happened. Not necessarily knowing that we needed the help at the time, but let them know that we might need the help pretty quickly before everyone got to me. They asked, like, do we need to be rescued? And my answer is no, but to call. And Seth was thankfully in an area that had service and was able to call and got the process rolling for everyone to be ready to come out and help us. And then I think it was not much longer, maybe another five or 10 minutes when I radioed back. This is still, I guess, yeah, before I think you guys got to me when I was like, I, I don't think I'm getting out of here. It just didn't seem possible. The avalanche spread pretty wide and went down multiple gullies. So there was, it wasn't, even though I wasn't buried and I had radios and we were talking to each other, it wasn't super easy to even find me. So Benton ended up overshooting in the drainage south of me. Evan got right to me. And luckily enough, again, because Benton overshot, he actually found my snowbird down there, which doesn't make any sense to me how it ever stopped going. But he was able to find my snowboard and kind of make his way up to me. I started picking my way down, you know, using radio and clues. And then at some point, I think we were like, what, what elevation? Because we all, you know, have our watches on so we can link it up to Strava and whatnot. And so Charlie radioed that he was at 96. I was at 93. So I was like, I'm in the wrong drainage. So I had to cut through some unslid trees into the right gully. And that's when I ended up right above the snow, snowboard. I was like, I got the snowboard. And I don't think we had called that yet because at that point I was like, got the snowboard. We're going to go get him on there, ride this debris path out, you know, get out of here. And so then I think once I found the snowboard and knew I was below him, that's when we told Evan to start kind of picking his way down. Charlie said it. Even with all our communication stuff, it was still just hard to pinpoint where he was. I could hear him. You know, I knew we were close. That was comforting and, like, didn't feel like a rush, but it was just it was hard to nail down where where he was. I think too, that having that 9,600 number on all of our watches and in our heads, we were also really slow and cautious to make sure we didn't overshoot. So you had already overshot. I remember Evan and I were discussing like, all right, we're at 99. Let's take this real slow and make sure we hit it right so that we don't have to end up booting back uphill just to get to Charlie. Cause that would just add so much more time. It ended up working out too, since that I ended up at a snowboard Evan was able to come from above and get to him and start warming him. I think I initially tried to skin up, but quickly abandoned that, left my skis down, and just boot-packed up the debris, um, bringing a snowboard up to him. I think we've all been saying one thing went really bad, but we had a lot of stuff go go well after that. We had sun available. You know, We weren't deep in some dark canyon like you can be in the Tetons where it's kind of hard to get to sun. It wasn't 300 vertical feet down to like the sun line. We said we got Charlie strapped in, and me and when me and him used to ski, there was already injured his knee in Rock Springs Canyon one time, and he refused to check it before he got there, but he was like, I think I messed it up pretty good, but he's like, I don't want to look at it. And then he just snowboarded out of there faster than anybody I've ever seen. Like, I couldn't keep up. He was at the emergency clinic 15 minutes before me. 
we can get this kid on a snowboard. We can get down to like that sun kind of thing. Because otherwise, it was, it was going to be pretty tough. And so we had one spot picked out, like just right in the sun. And then we knew we needed to get down just a little further to get the real ideal spot for, for search and rescue. So as I was starting to lose cell phone service, I, I decided I should just call 911 right now and, and establish communication and try and figure out if I was even going to have enough service to make a call. And so I called 911 and it didn't go through. And my first thought was, oh, shit, we blew it. I went too far. And I, I traversed a little bit further skiers left kind of toward the track that Benton had taken. And I checked again and I had a little bit of service. And right at that moment, I was getting a call from Grant Teton National Park because they had seen my call come through. And so I answered that and just said, hey, here's what's going on. And I told them I was going to need search and rescue. But at that point, we hadn't decided to make a, a full evac out of it. I, I told them what was going on, how many people there were, all that. And then I told them to stand by as I, as I radioed to Evan and kind of asked what the plan was. And Evan at that point said, stand by, we're not going to go for it quite yet. And so I hung up the phone and then... I think right as I hung up the phone, Evan said, we're going to need an evac. And so I immediately called them back, immediately got back in touch with the same person and, and basically called for it. At which point they said they were pretty well ready and they would have it flying overhead in 30 minutes, which felt kind of surreal. Meanwhile, back on the valley floor, first responders from both Grand Teton National Park and Teton County Search and Rescue jumped into action. Yeah, so that uh, 911 call sets in motion a lot of um, activity. A known avalanche, known injury, um, definitely calling for a rescue. My name is uh, AJ Wheeler, and I'm a uh, member of Teton County Search and Rescue, a uh, local emergency physician here in Jackson, Wyoming, and been on the team a little over 15 years and also served the team as the medical advisor. We work pretty closely at Teton County Search and Rescue with Grand Teton National Park and their rangers and uh, the rescue coordinators there. And uh, they called us pretty quick, um, asking for an interagency assist um, with the helicopter. Uh, in the winter, we have the, the helicopter resource in the, in the community. That gets a second page to Teton County Search and Rescue's uh, board of advisors. Um, and uh, we work closely enough with the, with the rangers in the park that uh, we all get on the same party line call can talk about it and they were able to kind of relay the information tell us what was going on request the helicopter knowing where you guys were you know definitely we we're wondering right off the bat like is this going to be a short haul you know what what kind of equipment do we need to to make sure that the helicopter has collaboratively kind of worked with the park the resources people they had available that uh, we knew we were probably going to need a couple SAR uh, Teton County SAR members to come along and so we started to uh, page our team and, and get people en route to the hangar so that we could put that team together. Uh, we knew we were looking for a spotter, which is the SAR member that's in the ship with the pilot for a short haul, and uh, ideally wanted at least two short haulers um, for that. And uh, the page goes out to our, our team members, you know, you're at work, at home, whatever, on your day off, um, and uh, the page comes through and you know, avalanche, injury, rescue kind of catches your attention pretty quick. So the team responded to the hangar, ro rolled in, and with the, the people that were available, Tim Sue Carlin, our most experienced spotter, Casey Bess, and myself were, were three of the first people there. Uh, got selected to be the, the guys to gear up and, and get on the helicopter. Definitely have some urgency in a situation like this, knowing that there's already an injury, wanting to get the helicopter 
in the air as fast as possible, but also be safe about it. We have a whole list of things we got to do. We got to get our gear ready, push the ship out. Uh, we go through a, a, a GAR risk assessment, make sure that the operational pace is reasonable, that we're not, you know, too hyped up. Looking at all the objective stuff we can for the day uh, before we head out, talking about Abbey danger, weather, checking in with each other to make sure that, you know, the rescue as rescuers that were in a, in a good place did not sleep the night before or anything crazy like that so that we're putting the best team out there. But we were able to, to get people in the ship pretty quick. Coordinated pretty closely with uh, the Grand Teton Rangers, knowing we were f- having to fly up from town. The location we'd selected to, to meet the Rangers was a little bit north of where you guys were, so we, we'd planned to fly by the avalanche site to try and figure out what we were going to need for that rescue. Definitely, the location we had was yours, Seth, which was on, on the ridge, steep terrain around there, and uh, had Charlie still been in that spot, it would definitely have been a short haul. And so we'd heard you'd moved at some point and flying up there we were trying to determine if we could actually set the ship down and load you internal i remember in death canyon there was a little cloud layer that kind of coming in and out um, kind of had to move through that cautiously watching for some icing got above that and it was the same gorgeous day you guys were experiencing you know, the sun was out the mountains were beautiful fresh snow you could see the slide everywhere it was a couple thousand feet you know from where it broke slid around that tree island to the area where we found you guys, which is where it kind of mellowed out, slope angle. Definitely that debris had piled up there, but then it dropped into that secondary chute and went all the way down to Death Canyon, another thousand feet or so there. As the rescuers flew over the large avalanche, they spotted Charlie and the rest of the group. They radioed to Grand Teton National Park, saying they could land the ship near Charlie to do a patient assessment and determine if they could load him internally or if they needed to do a short-haul extraction. So we're always nervous as we come into a, an LZ. The snow blows up. You lose visibility. We always worry what uh, the the people we're trying to rescue might do around the helicopter. The helicopter's got a lot of spinning, dangerous parts. Um, and the way we kind of had to come in, we put the rear of the helicopter towards you guys, which is not ideal for us because the tail rotor's back there. And so we're all kind of keeping eyes on you guys, trying to see through the snow as it's blowing up, craning our necks back, trying to make sure that the the tail rotor's clear of anything. Steve, our pilot, set, sets us down and uh, kind of drives the helicopter into the snow a little bit to stabilize it. And, you know, given that there was just an avalanche, he's staying under power, so if he needs to move the helicopter, he can. So popped out of the helicopter and, you know, promptly down to your waist into the snow. It was deep. And... Uh, Got our gear out, uh, skis and our um, our uh, airbags, survival packs. Casey was kind of managing the helicopter, working on some medical gear that we could bring down if we needed to. Being the, the medical guy, I got appointed the task of coming down to see how you were doing. <laughs> Lucky it was downhill, was able to kind of use momentum to just kind of plow through down there. And like I said, I was impressed. You guys had Charlie kind of sitting on his snowboard. Looked like he'd kind of dug out a spot for his feet, so he was upright and ra- wrapped up in the... Uh, that tarp there, and I was like, wow, that's, that's a really good job, kind of trying to keep him warm and everything. And I mean, it seemed like it happened in a blur there. I, I got down there, said, hey, I'm Dr. Wheeler, and I uh, introduced myself to you quickly and just said, what hurts? Um, and I remember you saying, you know, like, my, my ribs hurt, but you were clearly like alert and, and breathing and talking, so I wasn't too worried. And then you said, my stomach feels funny. 
alarm bells in my head just started going off. I was like, oh man, there's probably something internal there that we don't want to mess around with. And I asked you if you thought you could make it to the helicopter. Uh, and you said, yes. So we need to weigh in the timing of everything. You know, we'd, we'd gotten there just, I think a little about an hour after you called 911 initially. And, uh, you know, most people are familiar with the golden hour, um, trying to get trauma victims to definitive care at the hospital. Within an hour of their injury, they do better. We're able to get on top of bleeding and treat them better. So we're already kind of pushing that boundary. And I've started thinking like, okay, if you have something internal that's, you know, that's going on, you've made it an hour, so that's great. But we transitioned to short haul. We're sending the helicopter away. They have to break it down into the short haul configuration. They're going to bring rescuers in. By short haul, then we got to package you up. The helicopter has to come back, and then we have to fly you back down to the LZ. And, you know, that's 45 minutes to an hour or more of just time to, to make that all happen. So when you said you thought you could move, I just radioed up to the guys at the helicopter and said, all right, we're going to we're bringing him up. We're going to try and pack this down so that we can get a little better purchase and walking up to the helicopter. Uh, and we're just going to try and get you the heck out of here. Remember, we kind of got you on your feet, and initially I tried to support you on the wrong side, on your on your injured side, and I was like, that's not going to work. Like, I'm going to move over to the other side. Kind of got an, you know, an arm over my shoulder, and we were walking right into the rotor blast from the helicopter. And uh, I remember thinking, like, oh, it's a beautiful day. I don't need to put my buff on today. That was a, that was a big mistake. I was like, Spindrift was going down my shirt, my collar. I was getting an ice cream headache. It, when the helicopter's blowing that in, it just takes your breath away. And I mean, it was only like 50 feet, but it was a long slog up to the helicopter. It was a long 50 feet. This entire time, Seth was still way up on the top of Albright Peak. At that point, he was told that it was okay for him to descend down to the helicopter, but with a pretty strict stipulation. I wish I would have got to enjoy it. It looked like the snow was pretty good. I saw where Benton had skied down and it looked pretty soft, but I, I received a call from Grand Teton Dispatch that said, the helicopter's coming back for you. We know you're up there. You're not getting left behind. Because my first thought seeing the helicopter take off was like, damn it. Everybody just left and now it's me. You know that's not going to happen, but of course in my brain I was thinking this is what's happening. And so the dispatcher specifically made me promise to ski only slid snow. And I was not allowed to ski any unslid snow. There's rescuers down there. You can't put anybody else in danger. You have to ski debris. And of course, I was okay with that because I wanted to get out of there and get on the helicopter. And I was standing on unslid snow in the trees. And so I shuffled out to the slide path that Benton had initially skied. And I remember hitting it and it was abrasive. It was absolutely awful. Just rugged garbage snow bed surface rocks frozen death cookies it was it was everything you don't want to be skiing but it was the safest route down and i remember picking up a little bit too much speed for a little bit and trying to shut it down and my my board was just chattering against the ground and it was i was i was stressed out because i thought the helicopter was going to leave without me again and it was it was a wave of emotions i i tried to take it as slow as i could but it was it was rough the helicopter takes Charlie to a place in the park called Windy Point. There's an ambulance there, and they give him a thorough assessment. Charlie thinks he's feeling okay and decides that he's just going to have Seth drive him to the hospital in Jackson instead of taking the ambulance. 
because Seth had been up on the mountain by himself for so long. They thought he'd be a good wingman for Charlie in the hospital, while Benton and Evan tied up any other loose ends from the day. And they thought that was pretty much it, and that they'd soon be at home having dinner, talking about what happened. In the hospital, Charlie starts rehydrating, eating a little bit of food. And then he goes in to get some x-rays and a CAT scan. When the doctor came in and said what was wrong, it was just not what I was expecting. So it was uh, pretty rough. All said and done, it was kind of also as good as it could have been. Like, it was fine. I had uh, eight broken ribs. I had a lacerated liver and a punctured lung. Definitely at the time, I was just like, oh, my God, I thought I was going home tonight. And then I'm getting all of this news of like, oh, okay, it's not just like a broken bone or whatever. It was definitely worse than I was expecting. So time went on. That was definitely hit me really hard. Found out that I was going to be in the hospital for a couple of days. That was pretty hard for me, too. But I was very thankfully, Olivia was able to fly back from Arizona on a dime. And she was in the hospital with me by like 830 that night. She flew from Arizona to Idaho Falls, drove from IF to our place in Victor, got clothes and stuff to spend the night in the hospital, and then drove all the way to Jackson. So she was able to get there quick. And then I kind of just was there for about for three days, kind of just getting looked over, basically just being monitored, do anything to fix me. It was just making sure nothing got worse for those three days, and then I was able to go home, which was pretty nice as well. But yeah, even throughout it all, it the mental roller coaster was more of the pain for me than the actual physical pain. Like, yeah, it definitely hurt. It was obviously a horrible experience, but just that mental roller coaster of like thinking I'm going to die to being like, oh my God, I'm alive and I think I'm okay, to then being like, oh, I think I need this rescue. To then having the helicopter fly 50 feet above the ground right at us was a pretty wild experience. To then getting out and feeling better again and being like, all right, it's going to be all good and I'll be able to just like go home and sleep in my bed tonight. To then hearing that there was some internal damage that was going to take some time. In the long run, not much time, like six to eight weeks is what I was told. But in my brain, that was forever. And then came the aftermath where the group found themselves in the uncomfortable position of fielding questions from the community. But they especially asked themselves how and why this happened and what they could learn from it and share with others. I know I had a lot of community interaction. You know, the next day I went into work at 5.30 a.m. and just kind of told my coworker I was going to put my head down, and that's when I typed up that report. I thought it was going to be a pretty quick one, but then kind of just... Kept writing out words. It was really cathartic for me, if if anything. But, I mean, I know when I see, especially a big event like this, you know, you want to know what happened. And so I think a lot of me writing that report was just out of practicality. A lot of people know me. A lot of people know I ski and stuff. And I knew they were going to be asking what happened. So I just wanted to get it out there and... Yeah, I feel like I spent the rest, I don't know, I probably started sharing it sometime around 8 or 9 a.m. in the morning and definitely just spent the rest of the day responding to messages. And like I said, you know, 99% were all overwhelming support and stuff. I can only really think of one that I would call negative, where they just said, I wonder, uh, respectfully, I was wondering when you'd get checked. And I, that's a that's a fair statement. I wish it would have come with a little more than that, but that's all they gave me. And so... That one hurt, and like I mean, you, I think you sit on those negative comments more, but 
the support's definitely been what's like got me through, you know. Um, and I think a lot of that was from being open about it. Um, I think if you're open about it, more people are going to reach out to you. Like some people think you just want space if you're going to, you know, not say anything about it. I'm sure, you know, that that first week I definitely, I think in my own head I was, I was thinking that everybody was like, look at these idiots. They slid all right kind of thing. But I don't know how much of that was actually going on, you know. I didn't hear any. And it, it seemed kind of one of those things like the people in the know like reached out to us, you know. I heard from a lot of people I considered mentors, you know. Even a personal mentor of mine had skied it two days before us. Yeah, the community support has been good and as much as it, it doesn't really help to hear like, hey, I, I probably would have skied that too. If anything, that's scary, but it helps that justification of like, okay, we didn't completely blow it. I think part of that is like almost the scarier part. I think that's what we really this first week for me I was just trying to be so analytical about it. Where do you know, where do we go wrong? Where could we have dug a pit? Where could we have seen this coming? But a lot of it's just that's part of the game. And so I think then dealing with those existential questions for the next month or so and on as I get back out there has definitely been more of it. And even on that side, the community has been very opening. And if you want to talk about it, they they seem willing to listen. I think there's the whispers between the uneducated and more flippant people of like, oh, those idiots, of course, kind of thing. But I don't, I don't need to pay much stock to them. And for me, I was personally at the time, I was the one saying to myself, I'm an idiot. I can't believe this happened. I can't believe I put myself in this scenario. And because of that, I was terrified to go back into the community and just see what people what people thought. At first, I really wanted us to have made a bad mistake. So we were like, that's what we did wrong. And it's just an obvious lesson. But as time went on, one, I don't think that we did that. And two, I think that would have been worse. But because of that, I've We've gotten to talk to so many respectable people that dedicated their lives to backcountry skiing and getting to hear from them, not saying like, oh, wow, wow, I can't believe they did that. It instead was like, wow, I could have seen myself doing that. Like, I could have seen myself putting myself in, the, in that scenario that you guys did. Like Brenton said, kind of feels good because it helps us like justify our decision making, but is terrifying that this is what we put ourselves into. And even when it's not an obvious thing that we did wrong. Something went wrong, and it went very wrong. I also, I forgot to say this earlier, but I work at Shooting Star as well, just a high-end country club, and I was really nervous to see the members, honestly, just because I have a lot of very close relationships with them, but they don't, and they know what I do, but they don't really know what we do. They understand that we backcountry ski, but they don't know what we, the whole process and what we do to prepare and keep ourselves safe, and all I tell them is, don't worry, I'm keeping myself safe, and... Then this happened. So I was really nervous to see how they were going to react to that. And all I've gotten is support. And it's been overwhelmingly incredible. I also give a lot of credit to Ben writing up that article, just the description of the event, because people that don't really know what's going on, instead of reading the front page newspaper article of Idaho Man gets slid an avalanche, they can see really what happened and see firsthand from a point of view of not just Ben, in my mind, that point of view is truly all of us. Like, we are a unit out there, and his point of view that he put out there, put in paper and writing, really describes what happened. And It's super helpful, one, to not have to just describe it exactly every time, but people can have read that, get their own idea of what happened, and then talk to us, 
the fact that people can really understand it, I feel it has helped in the support. It's not just this blind support of, oh, something went wrong, like, I'm here for you. They kind of understand to a point of what it went down. Seeing how much people care has been pretty incredible. If you were going to go do it again, what would you do differently? What What are those steps maybe that, looking back on it now, that you guys would possibly do differently? I think if I really look back on the last, you know, two to three years of my backcountry skiing career and what I've done in the Tetons, I think definitely there's a time where, like, the frequency and amount of time I spend in truly complex terrain and in a lot of snow adds up, you know, that cumulative time, kind of having that mindset of where's that line that we can get up to, you know, what's the safest thing we could do today. And I feel like even this year before the accident, I know myself, I had tried to be more vocal with my partners and more just a marathon, not a sprint, I feel like is what's been in my mind lately. You don't always have to ski the coolest thing, you know. What about, you know, just multiple pal laps on an easy thing or that low elevation line that you like? I don't think that it's hard for me to play in my mind what we'd do different that night before that day as far as decision making. But I just think the recognizing the pattern and the frequency that you put yourself in, just like it kind of adds up in that cumulative time. You know, just cuts those margins thinner when, when something could go wrong, you know. You look back and the classic line of like, did we get away with it or did we, you know, nail it today kind of thing. And snow's a bad feedback. You can't really tell sometimes if you nail it or if you just got lucky. So definitely like using this event, it's feedback, you know. You don't get that a lot. So I think trying to make sure I really sit with it and let it affect my future patterns and, and frequency in that terrain is, is something I'm personally trying to to come up with, you know, just just toning it back, you know. I mean, I think we see everybody in the Tetons. It's a self-feeding loop, especially with social media these days. You You get out, have an epic day. You see somebody else get out, have an epic day. Like, yeah, it just kind of feeds on itself. And you got you. oh, well, they skied that. Maybe we could ski that as well, like builds on itself and I think that's just the culture of the Tetons and mountain towns you know there's a certain risk-taking culture that takes over and you get swept up in it you know and everybody's getting away with it or nailing it it's hard to tell you don't know I mean I think two or three days after our accident I think the Grand Middle and South all got skied so yeah I think just recognizing that the Tetons are a special place and that you can ski some really cool lines midwinter but also, like, you don't have to, you know, not every time. What's so difficult about all this, right, is that when we started this conversation, we were talking about how special the Tetons are and how they give us so much life when we're out in those big mountains, mm-hmm. putting trips together, putting roots together, especially when you're out there with your friends. And balancing that that risk versus reward can be really elusive. It's hard to find that balance sometimes. Two weeks uh, to the day before the accident, the four of us, the exact same group, went up and, and skied the Nugget. I don't know if we were the first ones in it of the year, but we were probably pretty damn close. And it was in a lot of snow, you know. We we were assessing things on the way up. You know, there's no wind, no slab formation and stuff. And 
at the time we get down and it was one of the best days I've had in the mountains and, you know, felt like we nailed it kind of thing. You know, everybody was giving us high fives. Oh, wow, that looks awesome. Y'all, y'all nailed it kind of thing. And maybe we did, but it's definitely one that like I look back on. It's like, oh, that, that fed the monster, you know, but that's it. All, I also look back and be like, that's why I do it. It was really, really awesome that day. Bluebird, no wind in the South Fork somehow. Charlie putting in like a hundred switchbacks up to the cold and nugget and then just unconsolidated powder the whole way. But that's a consequential line in a lot of snow. So yeah, I think an accident like that makes you like reevaluate all the other times that you had in the mountains, which I think is a good thing. And yeah, I think just again trying to like really not let this event pass me by and without a thought and trying to let it affect my future. I got two things. I'll try to quantify, at least in my mind, after hearing this story, all the things you guys did right. And it started before that day. You guys took that companion rescue class. It's huge. Uh, so many people don't bother to actually get any good education on that. And so that was great. You guys were definitely prepared. You had the right equipment that you needed to have. During the event, you guys kept calm, kept your heads made a plan, took care of your buddy. Calling search and rescue early is critical. So many accidents in the Tetons happen late in the afternoon, and delays in getting a hold of search and rescue can dramatically affect our options. The sun goes down, the helicopter's not an option. Um, so you guys did a lot more right than anything wrong throughout this whole uh, ordeal. The second thing I, I'll throw out there, I'm trying to make a point and tell a story at the same time, but, uh, you know, we get paged as rescuers and you're kind of laser focused at that point, uh, get to the hangar, get your gear ready, find out what you need to do, you know, what are we doing, where are we going, what's the injuries, jump in the helicopter, out the door, coordinate with the park, you know, get, get to the train, assess the danger, you know, land the helicopter, load you guys up. And uh, there's a moment as the, the helicopter leaves and KCA and I are there and wait, waiting for Seth to, to come down. We can kind of see him making his way towards us where the helicopter's just far enough away that it's calm and serene. It's a beautiful day. And I, I looked around, like, the whole kind of cirque that we were in, I told KCA, I was like, I just skied this today. It's gorgeous. Looks like you know, fairly mellow terrain. I'm not seeing anything that, you know, would stick out to me to be like red flag, danger, warning. And then just the uncertainty, like look, you know, you're kind of panning around looking at the, the circuit and you look at the deposition and like, so you had to kind of make your way across that. It was you know, at least 15 feet deep and kind of that spot where it flattened out. It's just a huge, huge pile there. And then you guys relate your experience when you get down to the, the LZ and you know, every person who's volunteering for search and rescue, all of the rangers, we don't do this because we, we hate being in the backcountry. We do it because we enjoy being in the backcountry, doing this, doing similar things that you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, we know that wrong day, wrong time could be us. And so we feel pretty lucky to actually be able to be there for our fellow backcountry uh, enthusiasts. Um, there's no judging on our end. And, uh, man, the joy that we get to be able to come back and do something like this and sit next to Charlie and it's just pretty awesome. 
like Benton was saying, there's something pretty incredible about skiing a line like the Nugget, a, a consequential line um, in really good snow and having just a great day out there. But if you don't pay attention to it, I think the term you used was feeding the monster. You can just get like hooked by that of like, okay, you know, we feel like the snow's stable. What's the biggest thing we can ski safely today? Um, what's the coolest thing we can do? And while that certainly delivers some really positive experiences, and I don't, I don't think any of us are, you know, at the point where we're swearing off ever doing, you know, a serious consequential line and avalanche strain again, I think this experience has kind of helped us reset a little bit. So sure, we may still want to do those types of things, but it doesn't have to be, oh, if we feel like we have the green light, we have to do this. You know, you mentioned the, you know, how great of a feeling that is planning, executing, things like that. But going out and having a chill day with your friends skiing really fun, really good snow is an awesome experience and really fun in its own right. And I think that coming out of this, that's kind of, for me at least, renewed in my mind um, where, you know, I don't have to feel uh, like I skied something really big or consequential or dangerous to feel like I had a good day in the backcountry. And honestly, getting back to it, it is just what Evan just said is just so true. It's wild. Like, sure, I love skiing big lines, and I that's so. There's times in my life that's what I say I live for. But then when you don't get to ski for six weeks and you just get to walk around in the mountains with your homies, there's nothing better. Like today was the first day I was clear to actually make turns downhill. Two days ago, I was going to kind of do that, but our plan was to really just be outside and me and Ben and Seth and six other buddies and Evan, every, like we had a crew and we were just outside and walking around in the snow and kind of got skunked on what we wanted to ski, which was nothing, like just some mellow pow turns and we didn't even get those mellow pow turns and we still had such a good time. Like, and then today, finally actually getting to ski, all I did was ski mellow pow. It was just the best. That's what it's all about. Yeah, those great days of the Alpine are incredible, but just being out is what's truly the most incredible, if you ask me. Thank you for listening to The Fine Line. I'm Matt Hansen. Editing and sound are by Melinda Binks. Our theme song is by Ann and Pete Sibley, with additional music provided by Ben Winship. The interviews were recorded in the studios of KHOL 89.1 FM in downtown Jackson. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Learn more at backcountryzero.com.